0: Uh, My name is Abbas Mulani. Uh, Before I say a couple of words uh, about our uh, speaker tonight, uh, I want to announce at least one of our upcoming events. The next week, uh, April 28th, uh, we're going to have Professor Jenkins talk about uh, Nazi Germany and Reza Shah. Um, She has done some remarkable work, archival work, on uh, the relationship between Nazi Germany uh, and the Iranian government under Reza Shah. And as you know, this is the subject of a great deal of uh, hearsay and a great deal of gossip and innuendo. she has actually gone down on some really um, interesting archival research. Shah, about whom uh, she will be talking, is uh, essentially one of the masterminds of financial restructuring during the uh, Reza Shah period. Uh, uh, there is also a personal connection. Uh, uh, Shahd was the person with whom my uh, uncle worked, f- uh, and he was working for Reza Shah, uh, Shahd And um, his entry into politics was as sort of a mentee of uh, Shahd. So it's very interesting to see what kind of a character and what kind of influence he had. Uh, I think you all have these events. Uh, our, our upcoming events. We have uh, Sons of Spies, Chefs, and we have Mr. Behnut coming in the next few uh, Mm -hmm. weeks. Uh, And uh, about tonight, as some of you uh, know, uh, a few months ago we brought uh, uh, Hushengi Gulshiri's archives, uh, personal papers, to Stanford. in the conference we had, I said that uh, I think this might be the single biggest collection of uh, papers uh, at any university. And just this morning, by coincidence, someone wrote to me and said, I've come, I've come to Iran. At Tehran University, they have a Jamal Zadeh collection of papers. I think that might be bigger than Golshiri. <laughs> I said, Well, I stand corrected. The second biggest collection. Uh, and uh, the Golshiri Foundation, uh, was and the Golshiri family was very uh, uh, helpful in, and graceful in bringing us all of this. And we are about to begin the process of digitalizing these. Uh, so I think before the year is out, uh, all of these papers will be available online for anyone who wants to uh, look at them. And one of the things we decided when we launched the program, when we launched the, uh, we announced the. Uh, Uh, arrival of the paper was that each year we're going to try, um, in consultation with the Gulshiri Foundation in Iran, uh, try to find and identify someone who is doing really interesting, unusual work on Gulshiri and bring them to Stanford for a talk. So in a sense this is the first talk in what I hope will be an annual event of someone who is doing some very interesting, unusual work on Golshiri to come to Stanford and uh, uh, possibly stay a couple of days, few days, to work with the papers, and then deliver a paper here. And when uh, I talked with uh, Farzaneh Taheri and Barbara de Golshiri to introduce someone to us to bring as the first uh, of this series, what I hope will be series, lecture series on Golshiri. uh, They both told me, in Iran there's no one who's doing better work on Golshiri than our speaker tonight, Amir Arian. And uh, I have to say that uh, having begun to read some of his uh, work he's really a remarkable young man from a new generation of Iranian uh, critics scholars, and in his case, a writer himself, a very successful writer, uh, who are beginning to look at Iranian literature in a very different way than the past generation did. They bring to it a sense of uh, theoretical sophistication that is rather unique, and they bring with it a sense of immersing themselves in the literature of Iran. Uh, There are as willing to criticize uh, the giants of Iranian literature as they are willing to criticize Western theories about Iran. Uh, I just began reading, he kindly sent it to me, I just began reading his um, uh, PhD dissertation. It's really a remarkably fascinating look at four texts I don't think anyone has ever put together in a kind of a comparative uh, uh, study. Uh, He is comparing two classical texts, Haj Baba and the Persian uh, Letters of Montesquieu, with two of the best-selling books about Iran in the last 10 years, Uh, and Nafisi's Reading Lolita in Tehran and Satrapi's uh, Persepolis. Uh, I haven't finished reading it. I just began reading it uh, this morning. I read one chapter to be exact. And it's really a fascinating, remarkable work. And uh, he's also a very successful writer, as I said. He has his PhD from Australia. Uh, that's the, the citation that I was reading. But he's going back to school uh, as a, a MFA student at the NYU, uh, where he's going, to, where he has uh, been accepted into the creative writing program. He has translated some really remarkably well chosen. Uh, works of literature. Uh, he has uh, translated some of my favorite novels. Paul Astaire, for example, is translated and some of uh, Doktorov and uh, P.D. James. Uh, I, have, I don't know which one of P.D. James he has translated, but I'm sure some of you have seen P.D. and James' novels turned into great uh, films. And for an Iranian critic, an Iranian serious critic, an Iranian serious writer, to know that P.D. James is a great writer takes a great taste, because the generation past looked down at mysteries and uh, these kinds of stories as cheap uh, police mystery novels, uh, bulk books. But P.D. James is a great writer, and it takes a great writer to know a great writer. So I'm very grateful that Mr. Ariane accepted our invitation, traveled from Iran to here, uh, then from here to NYU, and an MFA in creative writing. He is, as I said, written a novel uh, that I haven't had the, the good fortune to read, but I will. Uh, and he's going to talk about Hushangi Golshiri and his prose. So, please welcome Mr. Arya. Uh,
1: hello, everyone. Thanks for coming today. And thank you, Dr. Milani, for very generous remarks um, I'm incredibly flattered now. I don't know how to begin this. And my special thanks to uh, Dr. Milani and his colleagues at Stanford and Golshiri family for inviting me and you know, setting me up for this event. It's a, I'm very privileged to be standing here this evening. Uh, in the introduction to his collected short stories, Dark, Dark Side of the Moon, Hushang Golshiri refers to his two major preoccupations with respect to his prose. First, the music. He points out that he was pursuing a sort of writing that lingers between poetry and prose, a writing that holds a musical quality. In order to pull this off, Golshiri taps into the treasure trove of classical Persian poetry. Having started off as a poet, Golshiri had an experienced ear for the musical nuances of Persian language. He succeeded in composing a sort of prosaic music that over time became the distinguishing characteristic of his work and remains unique to this day. In that sense, one could compare Golshiri to Ahmed Shamlu. Shamlu composed a unique poetical music by looking into the masterpieces of Persian prose, Tariq Behari in particular. Golshiri took the opposite direction. Shamlu explored classical prose to create a new music for poetry. Golchiri, on the other hand, explored classical poetry in order to create a new music for prose. Uh, Golchiri's second preoccupation, pointed out in that introduction, has also to do with classical Persian literature. Golchiri firmly believed that Persian language has an enormous amount of unrealized potential. He argued that the current impoverishment of Persian prose is caused by the sheer lack of awareness of the classical prose. Too many authors treated the language as though it had no past. Uh, and Iranian com- contemporary literature, in his view, had rendered numerous structures, I mean, sentence structures and even passage structures in larger scales, and writing strategies obsolete and rarely actualized the possibilities that could be traced and found in Persian classics. Uh, Those aspects of Golcini's prose are well known and have been discussed fairly extensively, both by himself, who was uh, very conscious of his development as a writer, and the critics who have been scrutinizing his writing for more than half a century. Uh, Here I would like to discuss a third preoccupation, which uh, doesn't come up in his writing, in, you know, in his essays on his uh, fiction and in that introduction to that collection of stories. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, neither himself nor others have explored to you know, any meaningful extent. Uh, this is perhaps because this aspect does not emerge in Gulshiri's writing as a quality or a characteristic of his prose it is not a merely literary quality. Rather, it is a historical, somewhat political one, and figures only when uh, when one puts his writing in the context of the history of modern Persian prose. So here I'm trying to show that Ghoshiri's prose, historically speaking, is a major turning point in the modernization of Iranian literature. By modernization of Iranian literature, I'm referring to the process that was uh, started by Muhammad Ali Jamalzadeh around the time of the Constitutional Revolution. So uh, before getting to what Gulshirid did, let me step back and spend a few minutes on Jamalzadeh's project, which will tie to the competition over the size of archives yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Milan talked about. So it is a common place to regard Jamal Zadeh as the founding father of modern Iranian literature. But what he actually did for laying that foundation is still under discussed. Like other literary projects of the turn of the 20th century in Iran, Jamal Zadeh's project was as political as it was literary. Uh, here, during this talk, I will talk about politics, or going will you know, use this term. or. Adjectives like political, but by political I mean it in a kind of very broad, loose uh, sense of the term. It's, it's 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 more of like a philosophical political concept. It's about uh, a reflection on you know one's place with regard to the state, or you know one's place with regard to other people or other countries, and beyond that. Uh, so it's like a, more like a geopolitical, philosophical concept than a purely political one. Uh, so Jamal Zadeh's project had a lot to do with the cultural politics of Iran at the dawn of the Constitutional Revolution, as well as the politics of Persian language. My argument is that Golshiri's project also pursues similar goals, although he never articulates them in those terms and approaches them from a very different point of view under different historical circumstances. We'll get to that uh, in a minute after this Jamalzadeh section. Jamalzadeh began his career when Persian language was in a rather bleak place. Decades of disastrous Qajar rule had severely damaged the country economically and politically. The consequences were felt in culture, too. And the impoverishment of the language was a blatant manifestation of it. There are staggering figures about the widespread poverty and the political bankruptcy under the Qajars. Lesser-known figures of this calamity reveal what happened to the language at the time, or the politics of the language, I mean. According to Erwan Abrahamian, uh, if I, so I don't know how it goes to the next page. Oh, yeah, it's, fine. it's okay. Why is okay? Yeah, it's working. So, according to uh, Abrahamian, as you see, we are talking about the turn of the 20th century now. The literacy rate was 5%, right? And we're talking about a population of about 12 million. 5% of Iranian people were literate at the time, which is not surprising. And, and that kind of literacy was limited to, you know, Quranic schools and uh, it was a very narrow uh, kind of knowledge, which is not surprising. What is, uh, what is really surprising, at least to me, is that less than 50% of the population could understand the language of the land. Right? They, they could, they less than 50% could communicate in Persian or could understand Persian. So when you actually you know, imagine that situation, right? you have a country in which more than half of the population doesn't understand the official language of the land, you can, you know, you can uh, surmise what, what's going on between the state uh, and the people. So Iran was not only a political and economic disaster, it also was a linguistic failure, a patchwork where different parts could not even communicate with each other. It it obviously increases the risk of disintegration and mayhem, because when communication channels are blocked, no central government can maintain the unity necessary for the survival of the nation. In the light of these figures, we can understand better what drove Jamal Zadeh to develop his particular style, also the political meaning of his project. Jamal Zadeh was the son of a renowned orator, Jamaluddin Bariz and perhaps his main takeaway from listening to his father's speeches was a deep awareness of the incredible power of words for reaching out to ordinary people, so-called. That must have triggered the idea of literary democracy, the famous you know, concept that he coined uh, around the same time, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, that must have triggered this concept in his mind. Jamozode was dismayed by his colleagues because he believed they didn't appreciate the power of words for affecting reality. His anger manifests itself in his important introduction to his collection of stories once upon a time. In this seminal text, Zode attacks literary intellectuals for regarding the ordinary people below human. And on, as he put it, and thereby falling short of fulfilling their tasks. The result, he argued, was the abundance of unreadable texts that serve as a jargon available only to specific cliques. Jamalzadeh, in contrast, pursues a middle language, a bridge across the chasm between the language of the elite and the language of the people. And I'm quoting him here. In our country, authors usually neglect the ordinary people and produce unreadable purple writing. In the civilized world, however, the cultures that pioneer progress steer towards concise, comprehensible writing. Men of letters there attempt to dress up complex concepts in terms understandable to everyday folks and articulate their thoughts into narrative to make them more accessible. If Jamal uh, introduction to Once Upon a Time is his theoretical manifesto, his best-known short story, Farsi is Sweet, is his fictional one. In this short story, four people happen to spend a night together in a prison cell. And the characters are Ramazan, an Ill- illiterate man who speaks the language of street, Sheik, who is a typical Qajar cleric bent on convoluted combinations of Arabic and Farsi that barely makes sense, and <clears throat> Monsieur, a Westernized, a Westernized flamboyant man whose speech is interspersed with unnecessary French words, and also, the, uh, of course, the narrator, who represents Jamal. Zadeh. it's kind of obvious, as the inmates speak, the narrator sits aside and watches this linguistic circus. He raises an issue that was on Jamal Zadeh's mind at the time. Why these four people, who are supposed to have the same mother tongue, fail to understand each other? Because there is no communication whatsoever between them. Such a situation, in Jamal Zadeh's view, was a recipe for a cultural collapse. And Jamal Zadeh was determined to address it in his writing. That's what his famous literary democracy is about, creating a literary space. Open to all forms of linguistic performances, a space where various forms of language meet and interact, a middle ground that could be shared by all Iranians. So it it was his literary project was at least in his mind a unifying project, you know, a, a part of the constitution of a nation state. This trend continued more or less for another half century. Writers like Hedayat. Sadegh Hedayat and Sadegh Chubak, came up with proses and styles that bridge the gap, or at least tried to bridge the gap, between the language of the elite and the language of the people. Until the 1960s and the 1970s, which is the time Golshiri appears. So my uh, description of Jamazadeh's project is you know, pretty ambiguous and is not that good, because he's not the main concern of this paper. But I'm happy to discuss it after. Uh, the talking Q&A. <coughs> so as Gulshiri comes on the stage, Iran is a very different place compared to Jamal Zadeh's time. Con- consequently, the politi- the politics of Persian language is also very different. So in the same book, uh, this is, by the way, uh, Erwan uh, al a A History of Modern Iran. So in in the same book, on the same page, I guess. I believe. yeah. So Abrahamian, uh, you know, makes this comparison. As you see, by the end of the century, by the end of the twentieth century, so even less than that. Uh, this fig- these figures belong to you know the nineteen eighties and the nineteen nineties, but we are discussing nineteen sixties and seventies. But you can get the idea of the progress of the rate of progress. I'm sorry. So as you see by the end of the century uh, literacy rate has shot up to you know almost 90% it's above 80% and you know, 1.6 million people are enrolled in colleges and universities and, and you know more importantly more than 85% right about 90% of the population could now communicate in persian so that kind of concern that kind of you know uh, Chaos that Jamshid experienced at the beginning of the century did not, you know, did not apply to Golshiri's time. It, it, it was not a preoccupation for him. So we are talking about a very different Iran, especially in terms of the politics of Persian language. The literacy rate, as you see, has uh, gone up uh, dramatically, and Jamshid's unifying literary project, you know, it, it, it is no longer necessary or meaningful. So it seems to me that in Golshiri's writing, from the outset, a sense of anxiety about the whole idea of literary democracy comes through. The opening up to the language of the ordinary people, which was highly fashionable when he started off as a writer, is absent from his work. In fact, not only does he refuse to go along with the idea of literary democracy, but he takes the opposite direction. Gaucherie aspires to a sort of linguistic concision and complexity, and tries to revive a notion that was out of vogue for a long time, eloquence. I've got too many things around me. Eloquence in that sense differs markedly from what the Qajars had in mind. Jamalzadeh was rightly worried that the Qajar eloquence had turned into a jargon, a language stifled by its dead elitism and inaccessibility. Although Golchiri never specifically mentions that, from his writing one can deduce that he believes in the exhaustion of the idea of literary democracy and works towards a more precise, calculated, concise, and eloquent prose. His version of eloquence, however, moves away from elitism. It is, in fact, the completion of the idea of literary democracy. Golshiri's prose is the point where the fragmentary nature of Jamalzadeh and Chubak's prose comes to resolution. Uh, Golshiri takes this step by creating a very strong voice in every story, a voice so compelling that can dominate the story and go on without sounding limited or compromising. I believe that the first moment Golshiri achieved this voice comes about in 1960 in a short story titled A Man With A Red Tie. So this short story takes the form of a report written by a Savak agent assigned to follow a literary intellectual. The story is narrated by the voice of an out-and-out bureaucrat. His voice dominates the whole narrative and occupies every corner of the story. Even the voice of the people who are not supposed to talk like him echo his voice. Because of its gravity, the voice of the bureaucrat exerts a strong pull on other voices and keeps them in its orbit. As a result, rather than the multivocal democratic style of Jamalzadeh and Chubak which scatters various linguistic forms and vo- voices across the text, here Golshiri creates a linguistic constellation with the strong voice of the narrator as its son, and other voices as planets that revolve around it within a certain order. Golshiri perfects this style in a collection of stories called My Little Prey Room, published in 1975. The same vocal strategy applies to the stories of this book. A powerful voice starts the story and keeps all other voices under its sway to the very end. This literary device has inevitable consequences. And some of them go beyond the will of the writer. For instance, all the narratives of those stories experience a profound solitude, caused usually by secret. In My Little, little Prey Room, the t- title story of the book, the protagonist's sixth toe is his secret. In both sides of the coin, the role of the narrator is in an old man's suicide in prison drives the story. That's his secret. The confessors in Innocent 1 and Innocent 2 carry a secret they cannot share with other members of the community. The strange, sometimes scary protagonists of those stories often deal with unresolved mysteries in solitude. This confined range of moods and characters is the price culturally pays for focusing on the voice, on the construction of and eloquent prose, or as I call it here, on constituting new eloquence for you know, Persian prose. In order for the eloquent voice of the narrator to take hold, the voice of the other is either locked out or subsumed under the voice of the narrator. As Golshiri moved forward and his uh, preoccupations expanded, addressing more complex issues, especially ones that include a collective, became increasingly important. Around the time of the revolution in 1979, Ga had already reached a fork. He had to either stick to his fairly confined settings and characters and maintain his uh, prosaic achievements, or compromise on his prose and widen uh, the, the net of his fiction to a considerable extent. The revolution itself, which was an incredible spectacle of collective activity, made it even more urgent to to make that decision. Uh, But it didn't take long for him to come up uh, with a solution. And it it was a rather brilliant solution. So uh, I try to uh, explore it a little bit here. Golchiri's response to this dilemma was the deployment of a narrator that has always resided in the margin of you know, storytelling techniques, the pronoun we. In Golshiri's work, this narrator, by which I mean you, know, you have a narrator that functions as a we. We went there, we tried this, we did that, we slept, we woke up, and so on. Right? So in Golshiri's work, this narrator appeared full-blown in 1980 in the story, The uh, Victory Chronicle of the Magi. The story is a powerful, succinct report on hopes and disappointments of the revolution centered around the prohibition of alcohol. Here, a Golchiri's prose demonstrates the same level of eloquence and surgical precision. However, rather than those insulated, weird characters in their isolated rooms, as we saw in previous stories, here a collective subject breaks out into the open. The narrator we goes through the revolution as one mind at witnesses and reports as one voice. Right? So you have a collective narrator that functions as you know one voice. Uh, To give us a touchstone, Golshiri repeats the experience of this we against one character, namely Barat. So uh, yeah, this is a passage uh, t- chosen from the first pages of the story, the, uh, the Victory Chronicle of the Magi. Uh, this is the moment that Barat, you know, goes to the statue, that you know, famous statue of Shah on a horse, and t- which was taken down through the revolution, and uh, yeah, tries to take it down. So as Barot jumped off the truck, we made way for him held his legs, and helped him up to the statue. Then he crept up the leg of the horse, grabbed its tail, and turned over to the top. He crawled forward and settled on the crest. We, the people standing as far as you could see, watched him. From the other side of the square, military trucks, the soldiers. We passed the news on to barat but he kept hammering at the horse." Right. So uh, as you see, uh, the, the, you know, the, the narrative kind of goes back and forth between Barot and the we. Right. And you know this structure goes on throughout the story to the end. So uh, Barat, who used to run a bar, is a passionate revolutionary. But as things turn out badly, he grows disillusioned and gives up his zeal. The story then comes down to the conflict between the we, who stubbornly sticks to its revolutionary ideals and denies the facts on the ground, and the defiant Barat. Golchiri manages to maintain his masterful, eloquent, uncompromising prose, yet he overcomes the shortcomings of that prose in addressing grand events and collective experiences by employing this technique. Among Golchiri's stories in the 80s, which is perhaps the most fertile period in his career, four long stories are written with we as narrator. The last one is a unique experiment is in storytelling. Uh, the story is titled Hauneru Shannon and it's a little tricky to translate it because it has several kind cont- it has it been translated? Yeah. What what is the title? Do you... I don't
0: remember. I translated
1: it. Oh did you <laughs> okay. And you I don't, don't
0: remember the title. Right.
1: So I translated as House Illuminators, which is not good but uh, just as a tentative type, title accepted. Uh <clears throat> Okay, so in house illuminators, the we consists of objects, the furniture of a house, which together report on the behavior of the owner of the house. Through their report, we get to know the man who's a writer, his relationship with his wife uh, and daughter, his time in exile, and so on. We get a lot of information about his life. The dynamic for giving traction to the voice of the narrator and making it compelling is similar to the Victoria Chronicle. Just as we oscillated between Barat and others in that story, here we travel back and forth between the abstract general we, which is the, you know, the, the combination of all the furniture, and the individual articles in the house whose voices concretize and put flesh on the narrator. So okay, I didn't know you translated. I. I hope it's not that disappointing. So it is also selected from the first page of that story. It's a very difficult uh, text to translate, by the way, because you know it's, 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 it's closer to poetry than prose. And you know there's a lot of unusual stuff going on in that text. So yeah, uh, it must have been dark, as dark as us, sitting quiet in our places, no whisper. When it's dark, we don't talk to each other. The mirror saw him first. He was dark, standing on the threshold, holding a bag in one hand and the dark silhouette of something in another hand. The mirror, illuminated by the lamps in the corridor, watched him and waited for him to switch on the light and start his quiet yet constant conversation with the whiteness of the wall before him." Here we see a seamless transition from the voice of the We to the report of the mirror, which is one of its components, the components of the We. Mirror reports back to we uh, the very moment it witnesses the man entering the room. Then the we comes back with a set of abstract reflections, and this is what it does throughout the story. Uh, then another uh, component, be it the sofa uh, the man sits on, or the clock the man looks at, reports back to the we. And that's how we you know, get the whole sense of b- the location, the character, and the narrator altogether. Here again, uh, Golshiri finds a way to perform his ability in composing his eloquent prose while telling the story of a collective. One of the continuous uh, notions about Golshiri's writing is that his novels fall behind his short stories. His most acclaimed novel, Prince Ahtajab, is in fact a novella, and so are his other praised longer works such as The King of the Benighted and Christine and Kid. He has written longer books, of course, such as Roy's Last Lamb, Jen Naume, uh, Mirrors with Cover Doors. But in those cases, the episodic nature of the narrative makes it similar to a collection of long stories meticulously threaded together, rather than the novel in the, you know, in the conventional sense of the word. It seems that Golchiri's choice of prose was the main stumbling block to his becoming a novelist. For a writer like Golshiri, whose primary agenda was the construction of new eloquence for Iranian literature, writing a novel required a great deal of sacrifice and exposure, which would have meant doing away with the prose he had accomplished. Well, not doing away, it's a strong word. But he certainly had to compromise uh, on the prose of his stories. Overall, what Golshiri achieves in his writing, and I'm concluding this talk is a brilliant prose that introduces to Iranian literature an idea it had abandoned since the Constitutional Revolution until 1960s and 70s. At the turn of the 20th century, the idea of eloquence, the notion of unified and polished prose, had taken a backseat to Jamal Zadeh's literary democracy. The situation sustained for decades until Kulshri broke the mold. He showed how one can compose eloquent univocal Persian prose without falling into the trap of the convoluted Hajar style. He writes his early stories deploying such prose and expands the scope of his writing after the revolution by using the pronoun we in several stories in the 80s. However, while this path earned him his place in the pantheon of Iranian short story writers, it someone blocked his way to writing quote, unquote, great novels. Towards the end of his life, one notices a gradual opening of his prose, a leaning towards a more novelistic discourse manifested in later stories, such as Gange Nome and Zarathustra's Fire. But he didn't get to develop and realize the new potentials of his writing, uh, since his life was cut short under the pressure inflicted upon him by. You know, mercenaries of the forces who deeply and passionately hate novels. Thank you. Okay, okay so I, th- I think we've got like half half an hour for for, for 20 sure. 20 yeah.
0: So why don't I begin to ask a question? Sure. Uh, I, in a sense, I disagree with uh, part of your thesis because I think Golshiri was trying to create a democratic aesthetics, mm-hmm. but the kind of aesthetics that he wanted to create was uh, very different than Jamal Zayed. Yes. Jamal Zayed still talked to the people.
2: Right.
0: Golshiri wanted the people to talk to themselves. Mm-hmm. He truly democratize the text by making it incumbent on -hmm. the reader to be active creator of meaning. Mm -hmm. He wasn't going to make it easy for you. In one passage he says, I use the platonic system. I make an illusion and I know the reader is smart enough Mm -hmm. to get it. The bulk of Iranian writers thought of their readers as essentially Mm imbeciles. They needed to uh, chew it out for them mm-hmm. Which, at least to me it was truly the, democ- the most democratic aesthetics
1: mm-hmm. no I, I don't disagree with that uh, uh, the thing is I, I use democracy in a kind of a formal sense of the word, in the sense that and it's very focused on the language so what I mean by democracy here is that you know uh, something like Sabur, right so you have a kind of a formal democracy there where you have characters who uh, the, the the story is kind of comprom- uh, compartmentalized between characters, different characters, and each one of them brings his or her own voice into it, right so you have this kind of plethora of voices that you know uh, come together to tell a story to us it is uh, apparently democratic on the surface, it is democratic because you have this you know multi structure, and it was very you know, it, it was prevalent since Yamalza too che back right even Hidayat did it and many other writers so Gashiri does away with that, but it doesn't mean that he did away with uh, democracy with the idea of democracy he did away with the idea of formal democracy or democracy in the sense of you know having a variety of voices in the text, right? He didn't he didn't care about that. So this is what I mean here, right? It's 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 more about uh, having like a, a variety of voices in the text, which Jamal Zadeh considered being democratic, and how Ghoshiri kind of uh, moves away from that and constitutes his own uh, Prose or his own style. So, yeah, we can, you know, we can, uh, I, I can't even uh, argue about him being more democratic than them from a different point of view, in the sense that when you have this, uh, you know, in, in a way that Jacques Rancière talks about Flaubert, right? Because Flaubert uh, was, uh, you know, he, he absolutely did the same thing with French language, right? He kind of uh, put aside. The, the, the Balzacian kind of circus of languages or the, uh, various uh, voices and narrators, and uh, created a, a kind of equality across the board for all the voices and all the words, right? So, uh, once here uh, argues that if there was you know, a, any democracy anywhere, this is to be found in Flaubert's writing, not in Balzac's writing, because this is the you know, ultimate equality. So this is another point of view to argue for democracy in Khorshidi's work, but uh, here I, you know, uh, it, it's I try to put him in the context of the development of uh, Persian prose since the constitutional Revolution to you know, to, to Islamic Revolution. I
2: wonder. If- can say a little bit more about this use of we, mm. I. Um, which is very interesting what, what, he's, what he's trying to do with it. You can elaborate more. I, it just reminds me of a, a recent book, relatively recent book. It's called The Buddha in the mm. by Ju, Julie Putasukha. Uh She talks about the experience of. Japanese, right, right. American. Mm-hmm. Ja- Japanese, uh, j- Japanese American, Japanese Japanese American, early uh, days of you know, past century. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she uses we and I, and uh, she moves from we to I in very, very interesting way. That, right. that creates a both collective, uh, but also a singular I mm-hmm. in that collective. That's kind of an interesting move if you can just sort of.
1: Yeah, that's what I think, too. It's a, it, I think it's a very brilliant uh, strategy for uh, writing a story of a revolution, right? It, it, particularly when you have a short story, when you don't have this, this large room for maneuver, and you've got to cram a lot of things into a fairly limited space. So under such circumstances, what can you do? You even you know, have to bring in a number of characters, which, to, which sh- a short story doesn't allow. Or you've got to, you know, uh, find a very kind of narrow uh, territory to, to operate on. So what golshiri does is uh, he finds a a you know a strategy to tell us the story of a grand event as a revolution, as an, as the Iranian revolution, but, but cover a lot of grounds in the, you know the space of a short story. It's also important in another way uh, when you look at it, because the re- the revolution, particularly the Islamic revolution that we had, w- was indeed carried out by a we, right? So and and I think all of the revolutions uh, it it happens there too. So you had a you know large number of people from all walks of law, life coalescing around just one demand, right? So when you have this situation and you want to cover it in a short story. I think the best way to do it is to to narrate the whole thing with a we. In this way he uh, shows us how uh, the whole uh, kind of process of the revolution ossifies gets ossified and you know uh, gets solidified in a, a limited range of ideas and notions and slogans and how a large number of people kind of stick to it without uh, being able to think critically about it, right? And in, in the other story that I pointed out is, <clears throat> so you have that structure in another story, right? So there, there is a village. And the people of the village uh, talk as a we to us about a kind of a half-crazy man who brings a, a number of uh, camels into that village. In another case, in uh, House Illuminators, or uh, well, <laughs> the, the original title, whatever it is, uh, in that case, you also have a similar situation. You have the furniture of a house, which could not have like distinct characters, right? You you cannot you know separate them and give them. A, you can do that, but it it probably doesn't get off the ground. But when you uh, actually use this we as uh, the as a representative of the furniture as a whole, and yet you, you know, bring in uh, separate articles one by one in interaction with the we, and, and you make this back and forth, you create a space that uh, uh, probably for the first time in you know, Iranian story writing, at least, you have a story in which the still life is speaking to you, and, and, it's, and its voice is convincing, its, its voice is persuasive. Right? So at least in these two instances, uh, given the subject of the story, I think uh, this uh, kind of choice of the narrative is very successful.
0: Mm. Uh, Do you see the novel uh, along with other works of Boshi or you think it was kind of experiment, Mm.
1: kind of new idea? Yeah. I think the latter. And uh, I, I think it was a uh, Gen Name. So was, was it in continuation uh, with other works of shiri or was it like a separate experiment? I think it, it was uh, like a, uh, it was a try. It was an experiment and it was like a leap towards writing a grand novel. But uh, uh, frankly, I, I, I don't think that Gen Name is a successful book, even though it has very you know interesting uh, parts and very fascinating chapter, very powerful prose here and there. But as a whole, uh, actually, I consider it uh, an uh, unsuccessful experiment. And it makes sense to me that you know it was a failure because that wasn't that wasn't the, the territory in which Goguryeo succeeded or, or could succeed, right? Uh, yeah, that that was not his stuff. But that's you know that's my opinion. I don't know. His most biographical. Yes, that, that's his most bi- biographical yes, as essentially
0: well. Essentially the biography mm. of himself and his father.
1: Mm. So it is his territory, but it's not his style. <laughs> well, uh, probably because it's so personal, and it's so you know it's so close to himself. You don't see the, uh, the, the, the masterful uh, Golshiri that you see in other stories. You, you see a writer that is rambling on. In, in many chapters, this is this is far from him in in his other works. He he was very actually precise on being, uh, on being co- uh, brief and concise. So yeah, Genomize, as you said, is an exceptional work in his oh and I don't I don't uh, consider this success. But, uh,
0: to not
1: as really yeah is that? it is uh, Well, as uh, I pointed out to, to this book I think it is a great book well it's a great great co- collection of novellas right because it has three or four uh, different stories woven together through some textual uh, techniques and you know textual kind of tricks right so p- between each two novella you've got like a classical text or this archaic a document that connects these books uh, together. So even there, and, and it's a very kind of common style. Even particularly recently, you see a lot of uh, that stuff in, in in American and European novel. But still, uh, I think it actually uh, is a you know is, is a kind of a, a testament to what I'm saying here. Gushiri, when he gets to like 90, 100 pages, right? From that point on, he either has to like, change the style or move to a different uh, place and employ a different kind of uh, prosaic strategy. Or if he goes on, like for 200, 300, 500 pages, like uh, what he did in Gen Nome, and this is the only case that he did so, uh, he, he barely pulls it off in, in those very long texts. Actually, it uh, arises from a project that I was working on. Well, I stopped, but I was working on uh, last year. So I wanted to write like a history of Persian prose, right? From a uh, modern Persian prose from Jamal Zodha to uh, to the moment to, to, to now. And what I found is this interesting oscillation that happens all the time. So you have this kind of opening up to all sorts of languages, which happens with Jamal Zadeh and then Hidayat. And then Ibrahim Golistan, actually, he, he could have been a figure that, that I could discuss here, but uh, be, because he, he kind of takes a, a very similar approach even before Ghoshiri. He precedes Ghoshiri in that regard. Yeah, But the thing with him is that he stopped probably too early. for. for but, but anyway, so this uh, back and forth between this kind of open embracing style that Jamal Zadeh suggests, and Hedayat and uh, Chubek pick up. And uh, this narrowing of it, and this kind of move towards concision and eloquence that you see in Gulshiri and Ibrahim Gulistan, then when we get to the 80s, the 1980s, after the revolution, you have another opening up, right, with we, we do Tawadi, Ahmad Mahmoud, and uh, early novels of uh, Barahani. So it, they kind of uh, uh, reproduce the idea of Jamal Zadeh for the post-Islamic uh, Revolution time. They do that. And then after that, uh, kind of uh, a- acolytes our students of Golshiri, or I don't know, whatever you call them. Uh, they react to that opening up by, you know, uh, again, narrowing down and moving towards eloquence, people like Shah Yirm and then Abu Turab Khosrahi. And the rest of them, and in the uh, in two thousand like over the last ten or fifteen years, you have another it, it, although in a smaller scale you have another kind of opening up right to the language of the middle class, the language of you know the, the youth the language of I don't know streets of Tehran and, and things like that, which is not that successful but it it uh, harks back to the idea of literary democracy. So what we have had this kind of pendulum, this, uh, this swinging back and forth between kind of two poles. At one pole, you have this uh, precision, this surgical prose, uh, this eloquence, right, which is dominant. And the other end, you have this opening up, this kind of m- multiplicity of voices, this plethora of, of characters and narratives. We have been swinging you know from this end to the other, but uh, i I think uh, one of the things that uh, has damaged that's been detrimental to Iranian novel is that we rarely have been able to stop at the middle point right we 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 rarely be able uh, be able to kind of stop the pendulum at a certain point and uh, get to a kind of a you know a, a, a combination or a synthesis of these two poles. So this is this this is a part of that project. Mubulshiri
0: came to uh, Tehran University, uh, uh, where I used to teach, and he gave a talk about how he wanted to write uh, the greatest uh, novel mm-hmm. of twentieth century. It, not joking. They yeah. really believe that he could. Yeah. As we walked out, I was talking to him, I said, no, uh, don't you think that creating the greatest novel requires a context, mm-hmm. requires a middle class, requires yeah. a kind of language? He said, no. Hmm. Uh, you can with perseverance mm-hmm. and with genius, essentially, with a mm-hmm. combination of hard work mm-hmm. and genius, you can transcend those limits. Yeah? Do,
1: do you agree? Huh? Do you agree?
0: No, I, no oh. clearly not. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. Nothing happens out of nothing. Right. There, there is a uh, yeah. you know, there is a logic to history. Yeah. And, uh, well, but uh, you know uh, the point that you said that part of his democratization is, if I understood you correctly, and please correct yeah, me if sure. I didn't, is that he sort of d- democratized the language by making it. Uh, uh, making all
1: words equal. Yes, exactly. That's what I
0: mean. Uh, but, you know, part of what makes novels, novels is prolific. is mm. this multiplicity of voices. Mm. And I think there is multiplicity of voices in Boshini. I don't mm. think there is an equality of uh, words. I think there is, you know, it's really like monapakari, mm. where different things have different weight in them. Mm. And he has, I don't know anyone who has used poetry yeah. as effectively as he yeah. has in a novella. Yeah. He has actually, in Charles of shown not just poetic
1: language, he uses poetry into a novel form, which is, I think, remarkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, okay, let me say uh, we are talking about now uh, the. Uh, so by the, okay, the polyphonic nature of the language in Chubak is different from Golshiri, right? So there you have in Chubak you have a variety of tones or moods of speech. In Golshiri you, you you barely get that. At least in his successful works, in his you know successful short stories, he's not interested in that, in my opinion, right? To have, I don't know, a, a goon speaking like a goon, a mullah speaking like a mullah. A, I don't know, a prostitute speaking like one, and so on. Golshiri is not interested in that. At least in his successful works, I, I believe, he pursues polyphony elsewhere, not in the tone. Right. That, that that's, that's the whole point of my talk. Right. How we how he moves away from this formal polyphony or formal democracy, which uh, which makes an equilibrium between the the. the The multiplicity of tones and multiplicity of voices, and democracy—how he moves away from that and tries to achieve the same kind of goal or the same kind of ideal uh, through eloquence, right? Through precision, concision, and this—you know—very kind of meticulous prose, right? This is this is the question actually here. That. That I'm saying. Well, this it's, is uh, the, the description of what happens between Jamal Zadeh and Gulshiri. But what Gulshiri does actually to to carry that out is, you know, is a subject. is, is, is a debate for another day.
0: I think part of Chubak's polyphony, for example, in Sangisavur mm. is a phonetic. polyphony, in my view. Mm. You know, he has seen something in James Joyce, and he thinks he has to emulate it. It's an emulated polyphony. Mm. Bolshiriz is a very organic, mm-hmm. in-grown, and the source is as much from Quran as it is from Joyce. Mm. He takes his uh, clues stylistically mm. from the same tradition that he's trying to bring the poetry, mm. the prose, the Behat and Right.
1: Everything. Yeah. Mm. Well, no, I probably wouldn't call Shubak's polyphony phony, but but, but, it's but
0: some, uh, Not not all of. It. In mm. some moments, brilliant. Yeah. But Sanghi Sabur, right. because the you quotes you gave, the examples yeah. you gave, were actually from Sanghi Sabur, I find that very fun. Okay. I find that very.
2: Uh,
1: mm. Okay.
0: Thank you very, very
1: much. Oh, well, thank you. Thank, thank you all for coming.